we are living through a pretty profound moment of death. COVID has claimed the lives of millions worldwide. In just the past week, we've lost some huge cultural icons, Bell Hooks, Joan Didion, and Desmond Tutu. What is our relationship to death? How do we want to be remembered and celebrated? What do we want to have happen to our bodies? And what does thinking about cultural relationship to death have to do with life? For me, this has really been a book about life and about how I want to engage in the relationships that are closest to me, knowing that one day they're going to end. And it, it, I, don't, I don't know when that's going to be. Today, a conversation about Caitlin Hott's book, From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find the Good Death, an expose of how cultures around the world memorialize the dead, think about the dead, and process dying and grief. I'm Peyton, and this is The Rhizomatic Reader, a podcast designed to bring people and books into conversation across space and time. Today's guest is Max Walling. Max was suggested as a guest by Edwin Cantu, who appeared on episode R4. I also know Max personally from our time working together at Sam Houston State University and from his days as a doctoral scholar in our educational leadership program. Max is so inquisitive. He is a deep thinker, and I was so intrigued by his book selection. I knew we would have some intense and thought-provoking conversation on cultural and personal relationships to death. We recorded this conversation in September of 2021. The first thing that I really like to talk to people about before we get into the book that they selected is I want to ask people about their reading life, history of their reading life, how you would begin to conceptualize that. Sure. You know, it's kind of an interesting question for me because over the last three or four years, as I've been going through this doctorate program, I would say that that my reading life has been very focused uh, uh, on the topic of my dissertation, the topic of my coursework. But overall, um, you know, I, I remember when I was in fifth or sixth grade uh, walking into one of my classes and I had Crichton's Jurassic Park uh, fall mm. out of my bag. And my, my, my teacher uh, at the time was like, you're not reading that. And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm, I am reading it. You know, I, I'm, I'm about halfway through it and I'm really enjoying it and comparing it to the movie and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I mean, I... There's not a whole lot that I think I do particularly well, but I, I found a love for reading at a young age and had um, had had a, a, a sort of an insatiable appetite for books and was reading above my grade level and um, have have always read for fun. And I think for for most of my 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 you know sort of teenage and college and you know maybe even in my twenties. So much of my reading was 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 I would describe it as escapism. Um, I wanted to read, um, you know, uh, the Lord of the Rings. I wanted to read, uh, you know, you know Robert Jordan's uh, Wheel of Time series, Stephen King's Dark Tower. Uh, you know, yeah. I wanted to be taken from another, you know, from this world, which is oftentimes frustrating and challenging and 
the lines between good and evil and right and wrong are very complex and nuanced and gray. And you can go to this place where it's just, it's very, very easy. You know, you have the evil empire, you have the valiant rebels, you have, you know, you know, life is much more uh, streamlined and straightforward and you kind of know who you're Hmm. rooting for. Um, Hmm. You know, at the at the transition of sort of my 20s and 30s, um, there were some life challenges that came along. My, my life sort of restructured in a lot of ways. And I, I really started reading a lot um, for growth. Um, the escapism component of it was still there. But, you know, there, there's a lot of books on leadership and mental health and things. You know, th- th- there's a lot out there that... that um, sort of regurgitates the same idea, but there are some really innovative ideas and some things that I just needed to hear or things that I just needed to read. And so I think in the last five to seven years, um, I've tried to make sure that I'm incorporating into my reading time um, books that give me reason to be reflective and, and, and books sort of like, you know, the one that we're talking about today, uh, you know, that sort of motivated from a period of my life where there was just a lot of death and grief and I didn't understand it and I didn't know how to navigate it. And I didn't know what mm. was right and what was wrong or if there was even a right or wrong way to do it. And so, so I think that, that that initial escapism has become something a lot more um, intentional on my part where it's not just how can I get away, but also how can I be better in the, the timeline that I'm currently stuck in. Did, did you, I, I want to go back to the, the escapism stuff, but also this idea that you were voraciously reading something that already connects us. And I love that you said it is that Michael Crichton's uh, Jurassic Park is a book that I read in seventh grade. And I had a similar experience where my teacher was like, that book is way above your head or whatever. And I was like, no, I can read this. And Uh, And I did. And, you know, I remember this. It's one of the few books that I have a visceral memory of like sitting in quiet reading time in seventh grade in my English class and like reading that book. Where do you like, did you grow up in a house where reading was kind of part of your lived experience or how did you get into this voracious love of reading for escapism? Yeah. You know, my, my father has always been uh, a pretty engaged reader. Um, he uh, he's he's a minister. I'm a preacher's kid, and so I think mm. I think he was always um, he was always on the lookout for things that could give him new perspectives on faith and belief. And you know, he read a lot of of, of Christian emphasized things, but his his you know bookshelves were full of you know perspectives on other faiths and he he's a big um he's a big biography reader uh even now as an adult every time i see him he's reading you know a book on thoreau or a book on lincoln or a book on he he's just always kind of doing Hmm. uh uh, some of that and so i think i probably come by it honest um because that he was just always you know a quiet sunday afternoon you know, the football game on mute and a book on the couch. Uh, that was kind of part of my lived experience growing up. Mm-hmm. So you've read a lot of escapist literature growing up. You grew into this phase of wanting to, to read things that are more helping you grow and develop. What are some of those things that you've been reading besides this book, which we're going to get to? 
Sure, sure. So, um, so there's this book. The, the, the author of this book uh, uh, has, I think, two others. Um, I really went through a period where I was just sort of absorbing everything that I could about life and death and processing grief. Um, and so, so that, um, you know, one of the most uh, meaningful books that I have read in the last couple of years um, is a book by Mark Manson. And the title of that book, forgive my language, is The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that. Um, Yeah. And, you know, that has, uh, that has really helped me sort of reframe. I I, I sort of naturally am someone that cares and is willing to sort of rage about anything. There's just so much wrong in the world. And, you know, only I can fix it, of course. (laughs) And that book was a really, um, you know, the, the central thrust of that book is, caring about a little bit less and really, really being intentional and, 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 and um, purposeful in the things that we give our bandwidth and our resources to, whether those be cognitive resources or otherwise. Um, I read recently uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Oh, it's um, a great book. Yeah. And, and that, that, that was actually, when you reached out to me, that was the first book that I kind of wanted to discuss, but the, the overall topic that we're talking about today is, is more important to me, but you know, that um, I think that was a really helpful read uh, just when I was going through some life hardship and just to give you some perspective of, of like, yes, this might be hard, but you know, th- th- there's a certain context that I think it helps to kind of have that in. And then I, I, I recently uh, uh, made my way through a book that I actually believe you might have recommended to me, uh, but it's a book called Wintering. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The it's by it's I have it right here. It's by Catherine May. May, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and have recently made my way through that. Um, just you know, kind of talking about the seasons of life, and um, and so those are just a couple that I've that I've read, but all of them uh, have really helped you know, just sort of put my mindset in an appropriate place to navigate, you know, hardship and, 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 you know, p- periods of life that are maybe less than smooth. Um, my last sort of question about your reading life growing up is just that because your father was a preacher, did you ever find that there was a tension between kind of your father's belief systems and the escapist literature that you were reading? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I am, you know, the, the, the the short answer is no. Um, You know, dad, you know, especially in some of our, you know, you know, some of me and my brother's younger years, you know, there would be like a, like a summer book club, um, and, you know, he would sort of pick, you know, you know, read this or this, read this or this. And, you know, we would we would kind of navigate through that. But I think that as 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 a as a teenager, as a young adult, um, you know, in, in the context of all of the trouble that we could have been getting into, you know, enjoying books about hobbits taking rings to volcanoes mm-hmm. was was, you know, if, if, if he had to pick from the buffet of teenage problems, he, he probably would have picked that one. Uh, he was always just happy for us to have a book in our hands. Um, and so he and I never really had any, uh, had any, you know, you know, butting of heads with that. One of the other, other things that, that, that I think that he enjoyed about that is that oftentimes whatever I was reading, 
on the drive into school in the mornings or something, you know, we would just sort of talk about it. You know, what are you reading? What's going on? You know, what are the characters doing? What are some of the things? And so I think that even though that may not have been his particular, you know, you know, genre of, 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 of literature, um, he, he found a way to sort of see the good in it and also kind of experience it with us in some, some small way. So let's get into this really fascinating book that you decided to pick, which is uh, Caitlin Dottie's From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find the Good Death. You sort of alluded to this a little bit, but why is this the book that you ended up settling on to talk about with me? Sure. So, you know, I went through a period now, it was probably, it was probably about three years ago, okay. um, uh, where I had a period of time where I was experiencing just a lot of death and grief. And so um, about this time, three years ago, uh, my, my marriage for more than a decade uh, was, was in the process of coming to an end mm-hmm. um, and, and ultimately, you know, you know, finalizing in divorce. And then mm-hmm. on in, in, in December of that year, um, one of my very close friends um, just, unexpectedly passed away. Um, and, and he, he and I were, were very, very close and, um, it just kind of came out of nowhere. Mm. And about six weeks after that, my stepmother unexpectedly passed away. Mm -hmm. And so there was just this period of life, um, where, you know, I'm, I'm employed full-time, I'm a full-time, uh, a student in a doctoral program, um, one of the core foundational support beams of my life in my marriage had, had been withering away, but now was, was, was gone. Um, one of my closest friends, another one of those support beams gone. And then, you know, my, my stepmother passes away. And so, you know, you know, that, that, that family component is also, you know, for, for my life, uh, one of those core beams. And so there's just, loss everywhere um, and grief everywhere. And, you know, life was already full and and challenging. And uh, I was just in a really, really difficult place. Um, I think anyone who's, who's experienced death or grief on any kind of scale, but especially, you know, a a large or, or recurring scale in a short period of time, it's just hard to get out of bed in the morning. It's hard to see the, the reason and the logic and the purpose behind life and the things that we do. And it's, and it's hard to reconcile all of that. Those are three very different types of death, three very different types of grief. And any one of them is hard to navigate much less three at the same time. And so I kind of went on a hunt for how do I process this? How do I, um, how, how do I navigate this grief and how do I sort of wrap my brain around death. Um, and I think one of the other things that I would, that I would throw out there is I have, even since I was a kid, I have always struggled with the kind of the stereotypical American funeral. 
um, where we get together in hushed voices and dark clothes and oftentimes someone doing the eulogy is not someone that knew, you know, the person who passed or, 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 you know, we, we sing amazing grace, which has always been kind of weird to me. Like that, that song refers to the person as a wretch. I've always just sort of struggled with, with, with some of that, some, some of that language. Hmm. Hmm. Um, but, you know, but we, you know, but we do this, you know, the, these things. And, and at the end of the day, I've always, even, I remember the first funeral I attended at eight or nine years old and just like kind of not getting it, like not from a, this person had passed away perspective, but from a, like, this isn't what grandpa would have wanted. Like, this isn't, you know, he, this isn't. And, and, and so I, I, I share that to say is that I was, I was looking for someone to give me a different perspective. I was looking for someone to say that if the normal approach to grief and death doesn't work for you, um, here's something that might. And so, you know, the, the, the beauty of this book is that they give you 10, you know, or, or, or thereabouts of, all of these different cultures and all of these different perspectives. And I have to admit a few of these chapters were sort of like, Whoa, <laughs> that's, that's not what I'm looking for. Um, but there were others that really gave me um, a different perspective. And if, and if I can't change the American system, I can at least in my own grieving process, do some things for me to, to honor, you know, the death or to process the grief or to do things like that. And so I guess the final thought I would share is that, you know, one of the core themes that she talks about through this book and some of her others is that we, um, we hide from death. We don't, we don't talk about it in our family units. We don't talk about it amongst our friends. We don't talk about, we don't talk about end of life at the end of life, much, much less throughout it. And so I think that it's a, you know, for, for people who are looking for an insightful read for people that, you know, listen to the, you know, you know, to the show, I, I just, I think it's something that, that folks could benefit from being exposed to and thinking about and wrestling with. Um, because at the end of the day, like we're, we're all going to face it, you know, in one way or another, and we're all going to ultimately be a part of it uh, one way or the other. Do you but, feel, do, you know, you, you sought these books out because you were dealing with a lot of grief and death and dying. Do you feel like the book helped you to process that in some way? I, I do. And I think, I think it helped me in a couple of ways. I, I, I think first, you know, um, the, the author, she, she is, she is very direct in her opinion that the, the Western approach to death and dying and grief is, is, is in her opinion, fractured and broken. And so I think that, 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 you know, I always, you know, and, and maybe this is a, this is an experience you, you've, you've also had, but I've, I've always felt um, sort of wrong or insensitive in, in funerals and in those kinds of things, because you look around and everyone, not everyone, but, but so many people are just beside themselves in, in grief and in tears and in sadness and in, and I have, I've never really had that experience at a funeral. And so I've always mm. felt, you know, I think the, the natural inclination is to look inward. Like, well, what's wrong with me? Like, I should be sad. I should be crying. Like, this is a loved one of mine. Like, I should be beside myself and I'm not. And so I think that the first thing that really helped was just this notion of like, if you, if you don't feel that way, you know, at funerals, like you're not alone. 
um, there is something, you know, th 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 there are different approaches, there are different perspectives. This, this is a system that has been very, you know, corporatized and that has been very, you, you know, that isn't necessarily about grieving and health and wellness to come from it, but it, but, but, but about other things, you know, about revenue generation, about, you know, you know, other things that maybe aren't as tied to death and dying. And so I think that that was, that that was helpful. And then I, I, I think that, you know, the second way that it's been really helpful is that in processing some of these other forms of death, something that's been incredibly beneficial to me is to begin to contemplate my own and oh. what I might want out of it and how I might want to sort of set things up for my own, you know, post-life care, but also kind of setting a, setting an expectation of my loved ones of how I would want my life to be celebrated. Um, and, and in, in through that kind of thinking, I, I can't change what everybody else wants to do, but I can find some meaning in my death and hopefully, you know, the last sort of lesson or the last perspective that I can give some people is that, you know, through my funeral celebration, you know, whatever that looks like, um, that other people can, you know, who, who have been uncomfortable might come to that and think, there is another way that this can be done. This, this was perfect. This was so max. This is exactly what he would have wanted. And to give them a different experience than a, a slideshow and amazing grace and no disrespect to people that love that. It's just not, that would not be a meaningful ceremony for me. Yeah. I mean, I might invite you. I sent you this document that has all of these quotes that you pulled and that I pulled, and this might be a good place for you to read this first quote that you pulled out, which is really kind of like the epigraph to the book, you know, before the book starts at your first bullet point. Cause I think this is a really important part of the book. Yeah, I agree. And so, yeah, I have that pulled up here. And so this is from uh, uh, Irvin Yalcom, who's a psychiatrist. And he says that uh, adults who are wrecked with death anxiety are not odd birds who have contracted some exotic disease but men and women whose family and culture have failed to knit the proper protective clothing for them to withstand the icy chill of mortality. And like, I don't, I don't have words that need to be like, they need to add on to that. Like, I think that's a pretty concise, uh, uh, you know, description of sort of the American culture at least. I think the book allows us to see other ways that we can process death, Indeed. other ways that we can, you know, from other cultures. And I'm curious about which, if any of these really stand out to you, because there are several that stand out to me that I have pulled and, and said that I think that they're important to talk about. Hmm. Yeah. You know, there were, there were a couple that I thought were really interesting. Um, you know, her, uh, her discussion of, of, you know, her own interest in the sky burial, that, 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 that mm -hmm. wasn't its own standalone chapter. That was more of, of, of just some of her commentary at the end. But um, I thought that that was as, as someone who is increasingly interested in, I guess what an American would refer to as sort of a non-traditional you know, you know, death, you know, ritual ceremony. Uh, uh, that was one that generated a lot of interest to me. I think one that, that, you know, the, the, 
the one I, I I believe you said it was Indonesia. I'm glancing at my notes really quick, but I I, I you know the one with Indonesia where they have sort of the ongoing relationship with the deceased where they, you know, they bring them out and they clean them and they, you know, sort of, you know, repair them and they clothe them and they, you know, bring them to, to, to other ceremonies or other rituals. I, I, that, that to me was, um, was really sort of shocking. And I think she even opens the book by saying like, you know, you're going to read some stuff in here that may really challenge your, your preconceived notions of death and what's appropriate and what, you know, what, what is sanitary or healthy or, um, and, and, and that, 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 that particular chapter really got my attention. It, it, it's also one of the early chapters in the book. And so I remember sort of getting into that chapter and having this really emotional response of like, what am I reading here? Like, what have I, what have I gotten myself into? Um, but, but I think that that, you know, in, in someone, who, you know, in, in, in myself, who's, who's looking for different ways to process and different ways, um, as I have gotten some distance from that chapter uh, uh, over the years, that I, I, I get it. I, I get that there's something about, you know, my, 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 my close friend who passed away uh, uh, during that three-year period, his, 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 his name is Aaron. And um, I, I could see myself really enjoying an opportunity to have a ritual or have a celebration and him be physically there, you know, not having a conversation or, you know, you know, you know, you know, dancing or anything, but, but just to have him there, there would be something uh, I think that he would have loved about that. And I think that there's something that I would love about that just to, just to see him and to, have to you know, to, to, in some ways make more memories with someone who's gone. Um, and, and, and so I think that stood out to me. The other chapter that, that, that stood out to me, um, I, I always, one of the other kicks that I have gotten on in the last several years of my life is just, just around sustainability in general, especially yes. <laughs> in, 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 in uh, environmental sustainability. Yeah. Um, and, and it's part of my interest in sort of having, you know, you know, what, what, what the author calls, you know, you know, you know, eco death or, you know, an, an, an eco funeral. Um, but the chapter um, in Tokyo, the, the, the chapter in Japan about the, the so tower good. And the the light up things, and you know <sighs> the you know that that you can log into your phone, and you know you know you know see the memorial on your phone, and you know and again it was one of those, it was one of you know I had sort of this initially negative emotional reaction of well that's so, you know disconnected, and that's so you know just just it, 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 it's not like there's not a lot of heart and soul in that and then you know again as I've gotten some distance from that chapter I think that but the things that we do right now in America don't don't sort of scratch that 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 itch that need for me either for it to be connected for it to be meaningful for it to be soulful and and so I think about especially this younger generation of people who have a very different digital life than, than what I have had throughout most of my life. And I think that, that there is true meaning in something like that for so many people. And from, an, from, a, from a sustainability, you know, you know, environmentally friendly perspective, there, there, there's something I think really worth exploring there as well. And so every chapter stood out to me in, in, in some different ways, but I think that those are two that really, for someone who was looking for a different perspective, those were two 
incredibly radical perspectives that, that I think initially I kind of shied away from. But as time has gone on, I've really seen how I could find some, some I, I could find more meaning in some of that than what I have found so far in my life. Yeah, the, the Japan chapter is, is so good. And I, that's one of the quotes I pulled actually from pages 187 to 188 which is the Japanese have not been afraid to integrate technology and innovation in their funerals and memorials. And, you know, reading that chapter, you learn that 99% of people in Japan are cremated. Yeah. Right. Uh, So there's not this, this concept of like the body burial, but I, yeah, the, the glowing Buddhas, I actually went and looked it up. Like I, you know, I went and like saw the images and, for, for listeners who, you know, might not know what this is about, it's, it's this idea that, you know, you, you buy this, you basically buy a place to put the remains of your loved one. It contains a Buddha and it, it's in a room with thousands of other, you know, Buddhas and they use technology that you go to the window or whatever, and you type in your burial plot code or whatever it is and your person's room that buddha lights up a different color than everybody else's yeah and and then you can retrieve it right i was even very interested in in these they have a space issue right that was one of the things that came up where do we put all of these these dead bodies and you know, they've built giant office towers in the middle of Tokyo where you can, you know, go and a robot will retrieve the remains of your loved one and you're in like a private little cell or room or whatever. And they even have electronic um, tombstones, right? right. So it's like, you know, you type the code yeah. in and there's, you know, and it pulls up an electronic tombstone. And yeah, it's it's really... It's really fascinating. I found one of the, I knew about this well before I read the book, but I I found one of the most compelling chapters to be the one about uh, the body recomposition, which is basically body composting that they're trying and in North Carolina. And, you know, I had heard a couple of years ago about this idea that you could get buried in a, a mushroom suit and, sure. you know, your, the, the fungus would, you know, eventually eat away your whole body and you'd become, and then there are various stories in the book about, you know, having your ashes planted inside of a, you know, cup with dirt and a tree sapling. And, you know, there are various ways that you can go and return to nature. Um, right. We don't, the, the way that we, embalm people in the u.s doesn't actually make that quite possible Um, but even the you know the the california chapter about just burying somebody not six feet under but you know a little bit higher above and then letting the animals i think that's the thing you were saying about the uh the air burial yeah right uh yeah the the sky burial i think she talks about was with the vultures (laughs) the vultures yeah 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 right exactly that like you know, the vultures come and they eat your corpse and then you, you know, you get spread out all over creation because they, they've eaten your body. Anyway, the, the whole point of that is, you know, I quite think that for myself, I see myself as connected to other sentient and non-sentient parts of the earth. I think that we are, 
you know, just part of the cosmos. And we just happen to be in this form right now. Um, and so th those types of approaches to, to going to rest seem quite appealing to me, uh, you know, being deep, you know, being composted or, uh, being buried in a mushroom suit or something like that and, and not going through all of the stuff. But that makes, whenever we've talked about this, I've said, you know, like my partner, for example, he doesn't want me to do that. He wants, you know, he says, oh, I need a place where I can go and visit you. And I think these are the, um, the types of like conversations you have to have where like, where can you make a compromise so that what the person needs for themselves or what they see for themselves, and then also what the living person needs or the living people, how do those things get reconciled? And I think the book will allow people to start to have those conversations about these are various ways of interacting with the dead, various ways of being buried, various ways of, you know, whatever, whether it's the technological urn in, you know, the Buddha tower in Japan or, yeah. or, you know, being composted and spread out under trees in North Carolina or, or cremated even on the pyre. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's really, really helpful to see all those different perspectives. It also brings up the question about, you know, what is the purpose uh, for whom is it designed? Yes. yes. You know, like, so you have very different ways of thinking about that. Like, let's go back to the Indonesian culture for, you know, a second. This idea that they bring the dead out, they have a relationship with the dead, is a cultural belief that is not so much rooted in I don't know. I don't know how to say this. It's, it's like they've decided as a culture that they honor the dead and that the dead are still kind of living entities in the world, right? That you right. want to build a connection to that dead person. Same thing with Mexican culture, Dia de los Muertos. Right. Um, so there's, there's an honoring of the ancestors. I think that when you think about the United States, the tombstone or whatever, is it, is it really for the living or is it for the dead? And you said something about like, I want something so that people know I was here. Hmm. So it's a very interesting philosophical and moral and ethical question about what, what do each of these approaches to death, who is it actually for? Is it for the living or is it for the person who's dead? Yeah, I, I agree. It's, 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 it's interesting that you bring that up. I, as I was, was talking with my partner over brunch this morning and, and talking about, about our upcoming conversation and, 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 and the book, you know, that was one of the topics that we touched on is that you know, so much of, of the, the ceremony and the ritual around death who, who is it for? Because it seems to be, you know, in, 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 in my experience with the, with the American system, is it, it, it really seems to be survivor 
Yes. centric, you know, putting, putting yes. you and your family at ease and, you know, oh, we can play this song or, oh, we can, you know, make these social media posts or, oh, we can do this. And, and it's about the, the comfort and the, and the, the, you know, the experience of those who are, who are still here. And I think that in, in the best possible world, it, it, it probably should be a little bit of both, <laughs> you know, what, what the deceased wanted and what, what was meaningful to them versus what, you know, you know, you know, their, their, their survivors want, but, uh, but it's interesting. I don't think that it was in this book. I think it's in one of her other ones, but she, she, she talks about the, the conflict that people, that families will get into about what the family wants versus what the individual wants and, 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 and how that can be, uh, you know, especially if you're already at someone's end of life, how it can make that end very conflict, you know, you know, you know, focused and very, very disjointed and very stressful and very, and I think she leverages that as, as, a, as you know, another argument of communicate your wishes early, give, give people decades to wrap their heads around it, you know, give, give yourself decades to, to wrap your head around it, because I think, you know, m most of us are going to evolve in what we want and what we value and what, what, what a meaningful, good death, as she would call it, looks like. And instead, we, we don't do that. And then we get to the end of things and we're trying to make a ton of decisions in a heightened emotional grief state. And it, 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 it allows, I think, one, it allows the, 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 the corporatization to maybe take advantage, oh, totally. but it also, it, it, it also prevents people from getting what they need, both the person who's dying and the people who will have to navigate the grief process. One of, uh, a few years ago, my grandfather passed away and, um, in, in, in talking with my, with my dad about it, he, he gave a, uh, an explanation that has always kind of stuck with me. Uh, you know, again, my father is a minister and so is mm -hmm. part of serving a church for 30 or 40 years. He, he, he has experienced a fair amount of death and he's been to his fair share of funerals and, and uh, uh, things of that nature. But um, one of the lessons that he taught me was, you know, you know at, a, at a period of, of, of death of someone that you really care about, everybody needs something. And so when, when my grandfather passed, you know, you know, he, he has four children um, and, you know, my dad needed to have some conversations with my grandfather before he passed. There were things that he wanted to talk about, things that he wanted to share. And that was what he needed. Um, some of the other kids needed different things. You know, one needed to be there with him at the end, needed, mm -hmm. needed to be there holding his hand. You know, that's, yeah. that's what that particular sibling needed. The others needed other things. And the, the process that we currently use uh, and that we currently follow and the avoidance, the death avoidance that we take, I think that it, it prevents so much of that from happening. Uh, both, you know, because not only do, do the siblings need things, but, but, but grandpa probably needs some things too. You know, he needs to say some things to the woman that he was married to for 60 years. He, he needs to say some things to his children, to his grandchildren. And if we don't, if we don't plan, if we don't talk about it, if we don't look at the death experience and kind of get a sense of what everyone needs out of it, I think we get to a, to a place where it's, it's rushed. It's maybe a little bit 
I don't want to use the word soulless, but it, 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 it's, 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 it's business-like. It's we do this, then we do this, then we do this, and you pay your bill, and then the world spins on, and we, no one ever really gets what they need on either side of the equation. And I just think that, that, that there just has to be a – it's part of the reason why I wanted to talk about this today is that I think just so many people find themselves in that situation of not getting what they need. And then for, the, for, for, for those who, who, who are left behind – 10, 20, 30 years of pain and suffering take place because we didn't do the work on the front end. Yeah. One of the, you know, speaking of that, uh, another book that I read this year, just on my own, which was Tracy K. Smith's Ordinary Light. And that book starts out with, uh, it's, it's a book about her mourning the loss of her mother from cancer. And what I remember from the book is that, you know, the mother decided she wanted to die at home. And, you know, she's, Tracy K. Smith spends a lot of time in the front part of the book talking about the home health care of her mother dying and the way that the family sort of was there in her last days. And then quite viscerally describes the moment of death, right? Like the, the last exhalation of breath and And then what they did as a family to each, they each, they gave each other each time with the body before they called the coroner, right? Mm -hmm. And she describes her own, that she decided to cut off a lock of her mother's hair and she carries that with her, right? And and I just remember that because I, I was thinking, you know, she was so poetic in explaining about that that moment of saying goodbye to the body before the official you know state apparatus comes in and takes it away and then they have all the funeral and stuff and um i don't you know there are many places in the book where that is a cultural norm right yeah you know many parts of the world you spend time with the body I think for me, this is sort of one of the key takeaways from not only this book, but I think just the the concept overall is that, you know, this this is a book, you know, I mean, that 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 talks about, I mean, the the subheading is traveling the world to find the good death. But for me, really, on, on the point that you just made, this book is really, I think, about finding the good life. Because mm. one of the things that that that, that this has taught me is, is, is it can happen like literally today (laughs) it could happen, you know, to, to, to me, to a loved one. And so it has really reframed how I, how I live my life. There are just there, I, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head right now that I have left unsaid to the people that I would need to say some things to, to my friends, to my family, you know, expressions of, of, of love, expressions of, 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 you know, appreciation, lingering conflicts. 
Um, I, I just, if I have something oh. that I need to say, I try to get it off of my chest as soon as appropriately possible because with, with Aaron's passing, especially, you know, two, two weeks before he passed, we were scheduled for a phone call and, and I bumped it back. I called him and was like, Hey, I'm just, I'm just not in a good headspace. Can we talk, well, you know, a little bit later? And then he was gone and I never got to have that conversation with him. And so sort of one of the commitments I have made to myself is like, that is just not going to be something that I want to experience again. And so it has, it has, it's given me context about death and what happens after life, but it has also really informed how I manage and how I engage in the relationships that are the most important to me. Um, because to, to, to the point that you have made, you don't always have a lot of time. You don't always have any time. Um, and you know, if something were to happen to me or my father today, I would be absolutely heartbroken about it, but I would also know and feel very confident that he he and I were, were, we knew how we felt about each other. We, we knew where our, you know, you know, that our disagreements had been resolved. There wouldn't be either of us sitting around for the next 20 years worried that something hadn't been resolved or worrying about our love for each other or anything like that. And so, so I think that, that, that to sum up my point is that for me, this has really been a book about life and about how I want to engage in the relationships that are closest to me, knowing that one day they're going to end. And it, it, I don't, I don't know when that's going to be. I think that's really intriguing actually, as a takeaway from the book, because when you were talking, I was, I was also thinking about, you know, you said, for example, oh, I'm not you know, going to put off this important conversation with a, a friend or a loved one, or I'm not going to, you know, do certain things that I used to do. And, and this is maybe a little bit of pandemic talk, but it, it is an interesting way. I, do you feel like the book has made you rethink the things that you're wanting to deal with in your own life anyway? The reason yeah. I say that is because, you know, I think one of the things that has happened over the, and I'm, I'm not there yet, right? We're always works in progress, but like, I've, I've really let a lot of things go in the last year and a half because I've mm. realized that they are not actually that important to who I am as a person. They're not really important to the overall life that I want to live, to live. And, you know, I think that the act of living needs to be just as intentional as the book is saying about the act of dying. I, I, I think that what you have shared is, 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 spot on to what I would want people to take away from the book. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know, cause I haven't done the research, but I would just imagine that on their deathbed, no one is, um, you know, no one with their last words is saying, Hey, respond to that work email, <laughs> you know, you know, Hey, you know, that, that guy on Twitter that said that thing that I didn't like, tell him he's a jerk. You know, it, it has, like, and, and I don't necessarily want to go too far in the other direction, but, but one of the things that I, I think I make people uncomfortable with a lot when I talk about this is like, the reality is, is that almost none of it matters. 
almost none of the things that we get angry about, the things that keep us up at night. I mean, it it matters to us in the moment. It matters to us in the context of work dynamic and, 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 you know, our, our belief structures and whatever, but at the end of the day, the things that truly matter at the end, at the end of our lives are, are, I mean, I think that you can count those things on, 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 two or three fingers. Um, and, 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 you know, for me, I think it's different for everybody, but for me that, you know, those immediate relationships with the partner or with, you know, whoever our inner circle is, whether that's friends, whether that's family, you know, to, to me, that's one of them. But one of the things that I've learned from, from reading this book and, and, and Manson's uh, uh, subtle art book also kind of helped me get here, but just like the, the things that truly matter, are, are, you know, the things that are worthy of our bandwidth, the things that are worthy of keeping us up at night um, are, are very rarely the things that we are giving our attention to. And, and so I think for me, it, 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 it has my, my dad, uh, you know, he, he's one of the few people that I've talked about, you know, these books with a lot. And one of the things that, that he and I have kind of come to, to, to discuss a lot is um, his perspective of that, you know, when, when death happens, the, the world it, it just spins on. I think that in, in that context, what really matters, <laughs> you know, what, what, if the world's going to spin on anyway, there's so many things that I think that we hold on to that give us stress and that give us grief and that give us challenges that, 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 that in the context of the world spinning on, it's like, wow, that, that's not where I want my bandwidth to go today. That's not where I, even, even, even if I have 50 more years to live, I want to be focusing on the things that, 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 that are truly the most important to me. And if, you know, some person on Twitter's tomfoolery is, is, is where your bandwidth goes, that, that is your choice to make. But I think, you know, to, I guess, to more concisely answer your question, I, I have found that exploring these themes have radically changed how I think about things and then get to a place where, where I can be investing my time in the things that, that I want to be and, and, and letting myself just enjoy a measure of peace and a measure of happiness, whether that's a good book or a Netflix binge, you know, mm. or just, you know, kind of, you know, curled up on the couch with my partner or, you know, having drinks with friends, because I think at the end of the day, you know, if, 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 if I have an opportunity and, you know, to not die suddenly and immediately, I think on my deathbed, those are going to be the things that I value. Yeah, that it's, it's very beautiful. Um, I think the thing that I am taking away from the book, because it goes back to this question of what is the good death? And it wraps back around to the way that this book is structured as a kind of cultural anthropology of death. I think the book just continues to make me grapple with the way that in our culture, we have a simultaneous fear of death in that we avoid talking about it. And we also have a quite cavalier attitude Mm. towards death, because I think that we don't live in a culture that does a very good job of honoring the dead or thinking about how to give those people a quote unquote good death. Mm. And what I mean by that is, you know, I think American culture, the book is not about this, but the book makes you think this. American culture is very violent. It's very wrapped up in death. 
uh, in a lot of ways. Um, You know, we love killing people. We love war. We love, apparently we love disease. Uh, You know, like um, I, I say that because I think that it's, it's part of the reason that we've not been able to have really good cultural conversations around things like dealing with the COVID pandemic or dealing with the epidemic of gun violence or dealing with the types of not just uh, COVID related deaths, but other types of preventable deaths that we could have in this, in this society um, around environmental racism and cancer and other types of, you know, things that cause people to die. I don't know. The book just leaves me thinking a lot about if we changed our relationship to death in this culture, would that lead to bigger cultural changes that are long overdue? It has an, I I think that there's an immense opportunity for it to reframe some of our other societal values. I just think it's a long road to get there. Oh, it is a long road, but I, you know, the book does make me have some hope that if, if more people, because dying by gun violence or dying by some preventable thing is not a good death in in the sense of like, it's not a good way to die. Indeed. And, and so, you know, the book is about memory and and memorializing people in death but i think it also raises all of these questions about you know what do we want to do as a culture so that people can die with dignity Mm. and um or on their own terms to live the longest life possible type of a thing agreed so it's it's a wonderful very different type of a book it's very easy, very accessible to read. Uh, you know, I highly encourage people to read it. I really loved it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So thank you for bringing it to me, Max. I appreciate it. Well, I, uh, I'm appreciative for the request to join you. And, you know, it, it, it probably comes as no shock to you. Uh, it is difficult to have in-depth conversations with people about this kind of thing. Like, I think even initiating it with my own father I think it just took us a little while to get to like oh, okay like we can you know there, there were not maybe like strong barriers but there were just some roadblocks we kind of had to get over to have these kinds of conversations comfortably and because we've just been conditioned to not and so I I appreciate being invited and appreciate just I I always appreciate our conversations about mm-hmm. deep and heavy things because because even some folks that you could have the conversation with it's not always particularly insightful and so I've, I've taken a lot from our conversation today too and we'll probably be rereading this at some point with with some different perspectives in mind so th- thank you max walling recently completed his doctorate in higher education leadership and has research experience in online education executive decision making and higher education finance In his newly found spare time, he reads for fun, is enjoying traveling again, and watches baseball. You can contact Max via email, max.l.walling at gmail.com, or via social media, at themwall84 on Twitter and Instagram. 
I'm always open to your comments, suggestions, and insights. Feel free to email me, rhizoreader at gmail.com, or contact me through our Rhizomatic Reader Instagram account, at rhizoreader. You can listen again, share this conversation, and rate our podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play, where you can also listen to an unedited version of my conversation with Max. We discussed many topics that did not make it into this final edited episode, including our cultural relationship to viewing death in museums, the politicization of death, the stress-induced and corporate capitalist relationship to death in the United States, and how we might prepare for meeting our own death. You can find a transcript of this conversation and show notes on the episode's link of our website, www.risoreader.com. Our theme music is composed by Leo Sokolovsky, copyright-free and available on SoundCloud. All music in today's episode is copyright-free and used with appropriate permissions. My name is Peyton, and this has been The Rhizomatic Reader. Mm-hmm.